Did Donald Trump just throw the pro-life movement under the bus? DeSantis is willing to sign a five-week and six-week ban. Would you support that? You think I, that I goes think what he far? did is a terrible thing and a terrible mistake. It sure felt like it. These comments were ripped by many, with some groups even considering removing support for the former president. Wait, was this a part of a longer interview? Indeed, the clip came from a long-form interview with NBC's Meet the Press. And after watching it, we think it might not actually be that simple. Actually, we think it could be one of the most interesting abortion answers we have ever seen. Also, it's a hot strike summer with United Auto Workers launching a major holdout in factories in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. Apple's Mother Earth commercial induces maximum cringe, with nature taking the form of a crotchety black woman. Mother Nature. What? And Erica recalls what would have been the most controversial order of nuns of all time. I'll listen more on this week's edition of the Loopcast. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. I am joined today with my favorite co-hosts, Erica and Josh. Josh is at a super secret location as well, doing some meetings. Uh, that are way above my head. Uh, Josh, are you enjoying that hotel room there? I am, but you just said Erica is your favorite co-host, and then you just said, and I Josh. I heard that. Singular. So, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it, Pogo. Josh, Josh is it. way too perceptive for me to do slight disses. Um, <laughs> no, Josh is, Josh is, of course, hey, a favorite you know what? as well. Actually, don't worry, Tom. Erica's my favorite co-host, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> I think she's America's favorite co-host as well, so <laughs> okay, we don't right, need to have right. an argument over this one. But uh, what's funny about this, this little banter back and forth there is the top story we're talking about today was actually a source of some intense debate. Uh, not going to name names, but between me and Josh. And I may have to eat a little bit of crow here because I think my opinion changed after seeing more context. However, okay. I'm happy to take one side of this debate. The top story, of course, is Trump over the weekend took part of some interviews. One was with Megyn Kelly. One was with MSNBC. Or sorry, it was NBC, right? NBC, yep. Yeah, meet the press. NBC. it was NBC. Meet, meet, meet the press, right? Mm-hmm. He returns. So meet, meet the press uh, is known for being, you know, very hospitable to Trump. Uh, that, of course, is sarcastic. They love to put him in corners and make him not look great, uh, but he takes him on anyway. And so the clip that was was put out, it was actually put out by DeSantis War Room, which is important to say. Uh, but it was a clip of a larger interview in which Donald Trump attacked. Uh, the presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis saying that his six week abortion ban was a terrible idea, quote unquote. And so a lot of people latched on to this terrible idea as a, an attack on the pro-life movement. Many pro-lifers, specifically Lila Rose being the most prominent, really attacked this saying, hey, don't take the pro-life movement for granted. Uh, you need to be our champion, basically, as he was uh, his first term, but second term. Well, she went a little further, I think, right? I mean, she said it was unacceptable. Unacceptable. And a lot of people held that sentiment. And, and I honestly was fired up as well. I, I, I don't like, I come into this with the bias of being pro-life. And so any attacks on being less pro-life frustrate me. And I think it frustrated a lot of other people. Um, but there was some context to this. Uh, once you listen to the full interview, you see that it's a part of a larger uh, argument about uh, how do we make everyone happy in terms of uh, when do we draw a line for abortions? It actually was a much more interesting discussion. Uh, the discussion was, uh, okay, people want a, are you going to commit to this ban? Are you going to commit to this ban? And then Trump, of course, shoots back, well, there's Democrats that want to basically have uh, post-birth abortions available, infanticide, uh, but, you know, up until the last minute. So uh, three, or sorry, I can't remember the months, nine months, eight months, seven months. Uh, and then, of course, the host is arguing back and forth. No, no one wants that. No one wants that, which, hate to break it to you guys, yes, the Women's Health Protection Act included protections for abortion up to the ninth month and partial birth. So that's a lie. It's just a very obvious lie that he's having to fight on. Colorado, Maine, Minnesota, several states have New York, you know, right. abortion. All right. At, so th that's, just, that's just a lie. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just a lie. And, and Trump was calling it out as a lie. So the final point of what Trump was trying to, trying to accomplish in this interview was that he wants to get to a point where we can move the ball forward. The ball forward being that we are no longer going to have abortions in the seventh, eighth, ninth month of pregnancy because 92% of people don't want this anyway. Obviously, this isn't the European model. That was the point he was trying to get across. And of course, that's tough when you're on Meet the Press 
but that was the true context. But seeing all the attacks, seeing the outrage, seeing Trump in this tough position, Josh, how did you interpret all of this on your gut reaction of seeing that first clip? Well, you and I went back and forth on this several times the last few days. I mean, my, my first reaction to it was that Trump was being political. He's being, a, you know, a, what they call it, astute or crafty or whatever. He's, you know, the reporter said, would you sign a ban on abortions at the sixth week? You know, the heartbeat bill protects any child that you can detect, when you can detect a heartbeat, would you sign that? And he goes, I think that was a terrible mistake. In other words, he said it was a terrible mistake for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to sign it. Well, to me, obviously, he's doing that to, to try to uh, attack his uh, toughest primary opponent. But he's also trying to do it, I think, with an eye to the general election. He's got to convince the suburbanite voters who are a little bit not too sure about him, voted for him the first time in 2016, but then kind of moved away from him a little bit in 2020. Can he win some of them back? He needs to show, I'm not totally extreme. I'm going to come together with a bill that everyone's happy with, which, of course, I would say it's naive. There's not going to be a consensus on abortion. The two parties are exactly. polarized on this. But the whole point is he doesn't, you, you could say to him, that'll never happen because there won't be a consensus and you won't be able to get this grand compromise. And he would just say, oh, I could do it. He doesn't care whether it's possible. He just wants to show people that he would only support a bill that would be a broad consensus, that it wouldn't be only his base likes, like a heartbeat bill. That's what he's getting at. He wants to tell the suburbanites, I'm only going to support a bill that will have a broad consensus that would have the broad support of like 70 or 80% of the American people. Now, that's, I think, the impetus behind all this strategy on this. He knows that if, if he goes into a general election campaign and they say, well, you're in favor of a heartbeat bill. No, now he can say, no, I think that's a mistake. I want something that's a little bit more of a consensus. So that's kind of the whole point of why he's doing that. Now, a lot of pro-lifers are like, why are you attacking DeSantis for this? You know, we'll see. We'll see if it costs him some votes in Iowa or not. Um, but I just, I, again, I, I just think it's I think it might to triangulate. You know, that was the whole thing that Bill Clinton was really good at. Like, I'm going to try to show I'm, and by the way, whether or not you think this is crafty or good, what, we, what someone needs to do to get elected or not, I'm, not I'm, I'm just explaining his rationale here. I'm not saying I endorse Brian. it. But Politico ran a story where it said the Biden world fears Trump may muddy the waters on abortion because they know, like, you look at Donald Trump, he's a transactional candidate. Nobody thinks in his deepest heart of hearts, oh, he just loves the pro-life issue so much. He believes it. He's been that way for 50 years. He's so, no. He looks at it like, can I get elected? I yeah, think there's I mean, people that do. I understand. But, <laughs> but for the most part, he's able to sell this issue, I think, in a way that might muddy the waters. Where the It is go. out of the box. To his, to his credit, it's different than how <laughs> it's been talked about by both sides for the long, as long as I can remember. Like, that's what Bill Clinton did in the, in the 90s. He would, he would isolate a left-wing policy you know, or, or someone like Sister Soldier and say, that's too radical. I'm against that. And so he would attack someone on the far left of his side to make him sound like he's in the middle. Was it a successful yeah. strategy? Bill Clinton got elected twice. It's true. Yeah. And I think for me, the most important thing with this whole exchange with um, Kristen Welker on NBC, the, the important the important thing to do is to go and, like Tom was saying, watch the whole thing. And so I actually wanted to lean into that a little bit, Tom. And you mentioned at the beginning that from the time this, the soundbite comes out of like condemning Ron DeSantis and the six-week heartbeat bill, which everyone on this call, I mean, any abortion at any stage is the murder of an innocent human life. Like we are totally 100% agreed on that. But it, I want to hear more about Pogo, like what changed for you? When you start listening, and I'm gonna I'm gonna post the whole thing in the show notes. So everyone who's only seen the soundbite, I would encourage you to take take the eight minutes, go watch. It starts at 24, yeah. 24 minutes into the interview. It's really worth it because we talk a lot on this show about politics and the art of the possible. That if you actually want to affect change, you know, it's very likely that we're going to be looking at a rematch of 2020. At this point, unless something drastic changes and Trump isn't the nominee, 
we are probably looking at you're going to have to vote for Biden or Trump. And so anyway, yeah, that well, being said, okay. I want to hear about Pogo. Like what changed yeah. for you watching the whole eight minutes versus the six seconds soundbite? So so it's multi-layered. I think that it was a little bit of a powder keg for me because I've actually just personally been frustrated. Obviously, this show is very public. We get a lot of feedback. So I did an interview with Steve Cortez, which uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's the one right before this. He is a spokesperson for the Never Back Down Pack for Ron DeSantis. Former uh, Trump world guy, he worked on both campaigns, viciously smeared as a traitor now for going over to DeSantis. He still lost Trump, though. Yeah, he doesn't trash him at all, yeah. He's very classy. He did not trash Trump. Talked about some of their accomplishments they had together. He was very comfortable talking about him. Uh, the same could not be said from the other side, and I, I think that's actually one of my frustrations with Trump is how he treats people that worked with him and, and did well with him. Um, that being said, I put a very, very, very massive disclaimer right away in the article saying, hey, we ha- had the opportunity to speak to someone inside the, the DeSantis campaign who wanted to make the case in good faith to the Loopcast audience. And I was appreciative of him taking the time to do that and speak directly to you guys. I got to ask questions that were very meaningful. We're talking about FBI. We're talking about things that matter to Catholics, pro-life protesters, all that. And I was just frustrated with a lot of the response to that interview was, oh my gosh, you're pro-DeSantis. You're bought and paid for, yada, yada, yada. The comments were nasty. I mean, it got kind of nasty on there. And and I am contrarian by nature, if you haven't noticed, with how I, I market the show sometimes or make the titles. Like, I am not afraid of controversy. I like getting in the mix. I thought the best way to bring this to you guys would be to go speak to someone inside that campaign. We are now searching for someone within the Trump campaign to speak to you guys. But the accusations that I'm a traitor or I'm bought and paid for are, first off, ridiculous. I think it's just, it's it's been frustrating for me recently to be in this politics media realm and just to see people make snap judgments, which to be fair, I watched that clip and I was very frustrated myself. But I think I watched the clip. I thought it was dumb for him to attack DeSantis on the heartbeat bill, being pro-life, being Catholic. I think that's monumental. It saved a lot of lives in Florida. And so when there was criticism of Trump over attacking DeSantis on that, I think that it frustrates me that people are not able to handle moderate criticism of Donald Trump. And so I voiced that when we were talking about, okay, how do we come out and talk about this as an organization, as Catholic Vote? People were like, oh, we don't want to touch it. We don't want to anger people that are super pro-Trump. And I was like, for me, I'm like, are you serious? We're not going to, we're not going to give a mild criticism of he shouldn't do this. Uh, and then I think one of the things that I was told by, by a writer here was, well, Trump, you know, he's freewheeling and he says some things that he doesn't mean or doesn't follow through on. And that was the real thing that made me upset because I was like, well, apply that standard to literally anyone else. That would never fly. Are you serious? Like people say things they don't mean. So therefore we shouldn't criticize them when they say something dumb. I was like, if DeSantis would have said something, we would have criticized him. If Nikki Haley would have said something, we would have criticized her. Like, <laughs> well, and the thing we, is, we criticized all these people. When Nikki Haley did go after fellow Republican candidates last debate, I did attack her for that because she was saying... The Senate will never pass a 15-week ban, so why are you wasting your time? And I'm like, no, just because even if the Senate never does, you need to stake out a position and tell people what you stand for. Because if you don't say what you stand for, the other side is going to say, to try to define you in a way that, you know, that's all over the place and doesn't help you. So stand, you know, you got to put a flag down and say, this is what I stand for. Now... With regards to, uh, you know, the whole thing about Trump and saying, you know, we, we put uh, that's, you know, that article out and about Trump and what he said about the heartbeat bill. And um, we had a lot of people just coming in with these comments, just so angry. And I'm canceling my donations. You're attacking DeSantis. It's like, well, to me, it's hilarious. Because by the way, if you look at my personal view of the candidates, um, I was like, pro-DeSantis, pro-DeSantis, and now kind of more pro-Trump, pro-Trump, and I go back and forth. Um, and it's like, you know, so people are like, well, you're for this, you're for that. I mean, I just, you got to get thick skin, you got to laugh it off, you got to move on. But, but yeah. the fact is, what we're going to do is we're going to call a spade a spade. And so when Nikki Haley says something stupid on abortion, we're going to attack her for it. When Mike Pence, who I think was terrible on religious liberty when he was governor of Indiana, he says something great on life, Hey, that was an awesome answer, Mike. Thank you. And so when uh, Trump here 
is trying to triangulate to try to help him win the general election, um, I'm going to call him out for that. I'm like, hey, you know what? You're just doing this as a way to try to show everyone that you're not too crazy, too radical. I mean, obviously, what's radical is the idea that you should kill children. That's what's radical. Mm-hmm. But Which he said repeatedly in the interview. He's like, the Democrats yeah. are the extremists here. And he pushed right. back multiple true. times so, in the interview. Yeah. yeah. We at Catholic Vote, you know, Brian, our president, Brian Birch, said pro-life Catholic voters helped deliver Trump, you know, a victory in 2016. And we won him a record number of votes in 2020. So we've been good. You know, Trump is always somebody like people who are loyal. Pro-life Catholic voters were loyal to Trump. And so we expect him to have a second term, if he gets elected, that resembles his first. Because he gave us three great uh, people on the Supreme Court, pro-life justices. He did a lot of executive orders that were not just good, but better than George W. Bush had done. And that's not necessarily an attack on Bush. It's just that after so many years, you're like, here's a way we can make this executive order even better. You learn more, you know. And then personnel. He put so many great people in um, all these agencies, especially the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and so we expect- Oh, like Fauci? No, <laughs> I mean like uh, Roger Sam Sam Carson. Fauci was uh-huh, already there. <laughs> Fauci was already there. <laughs> mm-hmm. he know, he's not him. even in it. He should But he had yeah, Roger that's Severino. That's a big mistake, but- He had Roger Severino in, in, in there and just, he did an outstanding job uh, defending yeah. religious liberty for healthcare workers and and a lot of other policies. and so. Um, you know, he says something like this, we're going to push back at him. You know, we're not going to use kid gloves. You know, we're going to, we're going to call like we see it. Um, but at the end of the day, I think sometimes some people might kind of overreact. And at the end of the day, if you really distill what this argument was with the reporter, he was talking about a hypothetical situation. What would he do if a heartbeat bill landed on his desk as president? Would he sign it or veto it? And of course. I don't anticipate any time in the next 10 years any such bill passing Congress. And if it does, it'll only pass because you have over 60 people in the Senate. Then, then yeah, you sign it because America's changed. Right. If I could add for context as well, Steve Cortez definitely said the same thing about DeSantis. Like DeSantis understands politics and the levers of power. There is basically a, a 0.01% chance that anything would reach the desk as president on the federal level in terms of a ban. It's just not how it's going to work politically right. in terms of getting the votes and in the Senate. So here's, here's it's, a, it's the same position. Here's my um, two cents on, you know, because I'm talking a lot about like the political calculations here. And so actually I would give a lot of credit to Ron DeSantis because if you think about it, as a presidential candidate, you know, he's thinking about oh, everything he's doing in Florida as governor, he's keeping an eye on running for president, right? And he, you know, in Florida, we could never get any pro-life legislation passed. And so he finally got uh, a bunch of pro-life uh, uh, justices on the Florida Supreme Court, and he passed a, a ban on abortions at the 15-week mark. And if he would have stayed there and not did anything else, would people have criticized him? And it would have been safer for him in the general running as presidential candidate. But here's where I applaud him. He just went ahead with it, and the legislature was game for it, and he passed the bill protecting babies at six-week mark. So that might have actually hurt him, his chances in the, as a candidate to become the, the Republican nominee in the general, but there's a lot more babies that are going to be alive in Florida because of it. So I applaud him for it. Um, these are the calculations that all voters have to make. I'm not trying to, I mean, obviously, as Erica said, we all believe abortion is totally evil totally moral every time. Um, but you have to make these calculations on what is possible and all this other stuff. I understand it's tough questions, but we're going to call it like we see it. And we're not afraid of people who are pro-Trump attack us or pro-DeSantis attack us. Listen, what we care about is the issues. We care about trying to make a culture of life. We care about you know having a policies that are centered on the family. And we might make mistakes here or there, but we're going to try to do our darndest to call it like we see it. Yeah, and I think the way you're talking about it, Josh, it it characterizes it so well and makes it really clear that, look, politics isn't our religion, that as Catholic voters, you know, our faith comes first. And, you know, the only personality, the only person we worship is the person of Jesus Christ, right, and God. And I think where a lot of the the, uh, sort of political loyalty that it devolves into almost messianic worship is, 
you see it in cases like this NBC interview where, you know, there's a sound clip that says one thing, but then you have a loyalty to the person of Trump is like, it's going to be the savior of America and the, and the world. I mean, I was looking at some of our some of our comments were like, I live in the United Kingdom. You must elect Trump and save the world, America. <laughs> like, OK, all right. Well, I mean, talk about illustrating how politics has become the secular religion as we lose our Christianity. Yeah. Um, but when you when you approach politics from the from the way Josh is describing it as, look, we're going to measure everything against um, the, the ideal, against the actual like what we want to get done, the culture we want to build. Then you you avoid this sort of like personality cult that we we've seen uh, around the presidency in the last 20, 30 years, especially come up. So kudos to Josh. Yeah. yeah shout, out to, shout out to both of you. You're giving me hope. I think that's a, a very well-rounded answer to a lot of this. Uh, I think we what we talked about, I've talked to Erica a lot about this in that I think that Donald Trump, there's almost this expectation that people owe him like a blood oath of some kind. Sorry. We lost it. <laughs> Mercer's Josh, leaving Josh. now. He's like, I'm done. Josh is leaving to Send go make the piece. blood oath to yeah. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> he leaves so I can say whatever I want. That's right. Quick, Tom. Yeah. It was housekeeping. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Do not disturb. Um, yeah. So now that he's back from the blood oath, um, there's just a lot of people that I feel like there's this expectation we owe Trump a blood oath and we owe him this because I don't know, the election was stolen and he's the, he's the chosen one, yada, yada, yada. I think that Erica is the, made the correct take in that, of course, our religion comes first. God, there's only one God and it's not Trump. Um, but I think that it's almost human nature for us to want to believe that the person that we elect is good or bad. And they are a good person or a bad person. So therefore, if you're on one side, Trump is a good person. Biden is a bad person. On the other side, Biden is a good person. The other person, it's like you need to mentally, that's somehow a phenomenon that just happens. And I think the proper way to look at politicians is understanding more real politique, what Josh was putting out. They're identifying headwinds and trends and electorates. They're trying to find ways to get enough votes to get themselves in power. And if you look at them with that context, a lot of their actions make a lot more sense. And you don't have to feel this kind of moral responsibility that, oh, I maybe didn't elect. Like, I, it doesn't bother me that if Trump's not a good person, which very a lot of things have suggested, maybe he doesn't have the highest morals. I'm okay with that because I'm looking at it from, okay, well, what promises can he get done in office that would benefit all of us? I don't know if I'd say I'm not, I'm okay with it. It's just that you take everything in context, you know, I mean. Well, Josh, I mean, like, think about, if we're thinking about all of the things Trump's done in his life, or all the things Biden's done in his life, like, right. it may very well be that neither of them are good people, but everyone had to make a decision in the last election. Mm -hmm. I made a decision not based on whether or not I think he's a good person. I made a decision based on what can he do for the country. And I'm, I, that's where I'm no, at. No, I understand. I'm just saying, like, it's not that the personal character flaws are irrelevant. We're not saying that. Yeah. I'm that, sure people understand that. Right. We're not saying that. We're not excusing it. But let's say, let's say we take this as a given that Donald Trump is, you know, got some serious moral flaws in his character. And let's say that his opponent was actually a very moral, upstanding person, like, you know, just a nice guy, like, super good neighbor. But he just happened, you know, the, the, you know, support abortion on demand and, you know, mutilating children, you know, yeah, like, wait a minute, how could someone who's so nice, you know, like Jimmy Carter was like, oh, he's such a nice guy. Yeah, well, you know, he might be a nice guy, but if he's, you know, supports these horrendous policies. Now, I happen to think that Joe Biden himself not only supports horrendous policies, it's just a more not a nice person man as well. Yeah. So the idea that. But there, that's but he was marketed as a sweet old man. I understand. Good, good old Catholic boy. So but my point is like it's not that character doesn't matter. I still think character matters. I'm just saying that it, a, a man of decent character who believes in vicious policies that are extremely harmful and mutilate and kill people, then maybe he's not the best guy in the world anyway, even if he's a nice neighbor. And the best champion for the for what we're trying to push bring, you know, trying to end 
this cycle of violence through abortion and trying to protect our children from being mutilated or targeted by the Rainbow Mafia, um, that guy might be kind of a crass guy. Eh, he might be the best guy to keep protect us, though. So, you know, you have to take these all things in context. Something that struck me in the interview, too, at one point, um, she was really... She, she kept pushing back, uh, saying, like, okay, there's no such thing as late-term abortion. Nobody wants that, blah, blah, blah. Um, and Trump came back and he said, look, during my presidency, I gave pro-lifers a seat at the table for the first time in 50 years. And he, he said multiple times, he was like, I want everyone to have a seat at the table. And that is so many leagues better than the Democrat option, which is we just have, you know, unle- there is no conversation, right? And while, like we, like Josh was saying, when it comes to abortion, you know, it is murder, bottom line. Um, but I would rather have the guy who said, okay, I'd rather we all, we all need to come to the table. I'm going to work for us to everyone has a voice than the guy who says, you know, there is no conversation at all. And so Now, back to the primary end of things, when it comes to Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis. We're going to talk about these candidates. We're going to talk in context. Like, for example, Mike, Mike Pence, really good on the pro-life issue, has probably 0% chance of winning the Republican nomination. So we, we bring that up in context. Like, even if he gave the best answers and the pro-life thing is the thing you care about the most, I'm just going to give it to you straight. Guy's not going to be the nominee. Okay? Now, that being said, we're going to talk about all of these things. And we're going to discuss it, frankly. And we might offend your sensibilities sometimes. But at the end of the day, we care about trying to advance the cause of life and all the other issues that we care a lot about, you know, like parental rights and making sure kids religious are freedom. destroyed. Right. Yeah, yeah, religious freedom, all this stuff. We're going to talk about it. And you know what? If you're a super, as Tom said, if you're a super fan boy or super fan girl of a certain candidate and you get miffed, like, listen... Maybe you're looking at this the wrong way. Like, maybe you should understand that, like, these leaders are not your superheroes, okay? And we're going to do our best. We're going to hold them honest. And you know what? You want us holding them honest. Although my favorite account probably of all time is Trump History, where they use AI-generated <laughs> images to send Trump back in time. It's very to funny. Va- major events, such as marching with Martin Luther King Jr. and talking yeah. to Julius Caesar. Whoever does Trump History, if you're listening and you want to work for us, like, reach out please. i need a memer we need a meme lord yeah i need a meme lord yeah the nice part about this program too is of course i think everyone has a certain degree of ego but like none of us live in dc none of us have fancy apartments on fifth ave or whatever like we're truly we all have kids we're catholic we go to mass on sunday i live in the midwest josh lives in the midwest erica's a little bit of a cultural elite. a little bit connecticut mm-hmm. yeah. but uh we're just normal <laughs> like none of us are like Nothing that we're, we, we don't have an ego when it comes to this, right? Like we're just calling it as we see it. We're not influenced by, you know, what someone in DC wants us to do, wants us to say, like, we're about as close down the middle as we can be in terms of just being honest about what we see. And so we hope that these kind of conversations are enlightening and encourage you to have similar conversations with the people around you when it comes to politics. Because I actually know a lot of Catholics, absolutely precisely the point of this show, are uncomfortable engaging with politics because it does get so nasty and there are kind of morality things that come into it. But you can feel comfortable talking about, you know, hey, look, Pence has great answers on my, on life, but Trump's probably got the best chance of winning. That's an okay thing to say. Like there's no, no one should pressure you into not being able to talk about a candidate or talk about issues all because, and Catholic lefties love doing this. Like they just hate Trump so much. They would never break... Like he's like Voldemort to them. Like they would never, <laughs> not not to. They would never even bring up his name. Is that he's a so Harry scary. Potter reference? I, I personally wasn't allowed to watch that. Cultural mom, powder but, keg. Um, Come on, Pogo. Yeah, cultural powder keg. <laughs> so I, I need to move on before I incriminate myself further. But I appreciate all you listening. I actually genuinely do appreciate a lot of your perspectives. I got a quick note from our friends at Edify. So talking about media deception, everyone's favorite reporter around here, and Mary Margaret Allahan. Uh, she was actually guest on the show. Hopefully, going to get her on again soon. Uh, she broke down five ways that the media deceives you. Uh, it was a really good interview. She, of course, is very impressive. Um, but we talk a lot about media deception here. I think this is one of the best distillations of a lot of the major deceptions. So we're going to have the link in the show notes here. Go check that one out. She's awesome. Uh, Edify's awesome. 
uh, one of my favorite ones of recent from the Edify crew. So uh, next topic we're going to talk about here, we're going to talk about strikes. So strikes are kind of all the rage these days. Uh, it started out with the Screen Actors Guild, which I feel like no one really felt bad for uh, because they're all yeah. kind of California people that write. Uh, and oh, then, here's what? where I surprise you. Oh, I'm actually, you felt bad for them. I'm actually sympathetic <laughs> to, to the to the SAG strike. Is that crazy? Yeah. Wow. Do tell. Elaborate. Josh. I know they're all liberal and horrible human beings. No, I'm not, I'm not all horrible. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm just teasing. No, I. Uh, we're popping off this morning. <laughs> I uh, I am actually sympathetic to to the SAG strike because the fact is, if it's just another one of those, we're not getting paid well, and you know all that stuff, and I just feel like, gosh, some of these guys must be paid so much, but. You know, the actors get paid a lot, but the people who work on the scripts, people who work behind the scenes, that's kind of what they're talking about. And I'm sympathetic. I, I'm li willing to listen. But the thing on this strike in particular, the reason why they're doing this is because they want protections against artificial intelligence because AI is getting so good and you can generate scripts, you can generate even, car um, you know, the images now where you see this and you're like, at first you're like, this looks like a regular human being and it's actually not a, per a human. It's completely digitally created, and they could Luke Skywalker, voice. Mark well, Hamill I mean, never aged. Yeah, and so you can you know, well that's like Creepy. using CGI, but like literally they would create yeah. somebody who doesn't even exist. Like, well, you could write you could write a script using uh, ChatGPT as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, you can. So you can use artificial intelligence to create a script, and also to create the characters. And so their concern here is that you know you're going to lose that human element of the story. Like it's not going to be the same, and so actors are concerned about their likeness being used in ways they don't want. But also, so I mean, there's there there is something to that strike. They've got some points there. Um, I think that are worth you know. Yeah, it's not just a bunch of spoiled kids over in California. Yeah, that's so for I mean, sure. yeah, there's it's a it's more nuanced. <laughs> All right, more nuanced with the SAG, but we have another strike, hot strike summer. We have uh, United Auto Workers uh, just officially went on strike, and it's kind of a, a unique one in some ways uh, in the way that they're executing it. But I'd like to bring up, you know, American Catholic Social Justice Warriors, uh, including uh, Leo the 13th, have been very supportive of unions, workers' rights, the ideas of a just living wage, these kind of things. Like, these aren't, they're almost frustrating because I feel like they're brought up to kind of bash another side. But uh, in, in reality, these are a part of Catholic social teaching and it's necessary. So when, when you acknowledge these type of strikes, you need to look at them through that lens. Like, is this a legitimate claim? Is what's going on uh, actually necessary? And so some of the demands include uh, a massive pay raise, 36% uh, raise um, over, is it four years? Over four years. And then 32-hour work week uh, and pensions. Uh, Erica, I know this is a little bit of a unique strike. You did a lot of the research. Why is this one kind of different in some ways. Yeah, so it's really given the scale and the level of coordination. Um, this is with the United Auto Workers, the UAW is how we'll talk about it. Um, it has a real potential to be a huge national gut check, like even more than SAG, which is mostly confined, you know, to California, to some of the elite enclaves. Um, it's it, We had 13,000 auto workers walked off the job um, last Friday in Michigan, Missouri, and Ohio. So right down the heart of the nation. Um, this is still only a little under 10% of the UAW's uh, 160,000 workers. So percentage-wise, it's smaller. But um, it's the first time in the union's history and that we've had simultaneous walkouts at all three automakers. We're talking General Motors, Ford, and uh, Stellantis, which is the European conglomerate that owns Chrysler, Jeep, Ram. Um, the union boss, Sean Fain, whose name to me sounds like an Irish domestic terrorism cell, I uh, oh, said, oh, oh. it's a battle of the working class <laughs> against the rich, the haves versus the have-nots, the billionaire class against everybody else. So very elevated rhetoric there. Um, but like you said, Tom, some of these demands are, I mean, the companies are coming back and saying, this is just going to put us out of business. Like, we'll take it to Mexico, which some of them have already started doing. Massive pay raises. Um, and 32 hour work week's kind of wild. Yeah. Sort of the ongoing threat, though, that's, that Sean Vane is holding over the three, the big three, um, is that the intent is to keep the strikes going. Um, and the idea is that they're going to continue to have these sort of, uh, you know, widespread walkouts without warning at all three companies. So 
the the scale of it is really something that we haven't seen in really modern American history and the potential for real damage. Um, obviously, this will affect any of those non-unionized workers will be massively affected. Um, any of those smaller manufacturers who supply the big three, um, they're going to be massively affected as well. Um, so that's what and, we're looking at. And the response, the response from Trump and Biden yeah. was pretty different. So Trump's going to go there, right, Mercer? I think we were talking about this before we started recording. Um, he, of course, is characterizing this. The workers are the victims of Bidenomics, the administration regulations, um, and the the rhetoric of the Biden administration that they're going to get rid of uh, you know, the oil companies are going to get rid of gas-powered vehicles by right, 2032. It. And so Making Trump's like, easy. look, you created these conditions, and he's going to go there and stand with the workers, which which will be fun, versus Biden, uh, who says, um, you know, he blames the auto companies. He says, you know, the CEOs make these hundreds of millions of dollars. The workers don't get any of the record profits that we've seen since COVID. Um and so, of course, that's his rhetoric. By, and the union, I mean, I think they're hoping that the Biden administration is going to just step in and engineer this sweet, sweet deal for them. Biden's known as a union guy. I mean, he's named union guys to his administration. Um, union Joe. Union Joe. Uh, and so it's really interesting. Something that I found out when I was doing the research here that I hadn't really realized, you'd mentioned uh, strike summer. It really has become a culture of strikes. So the UAW walkout, is the 17th strike this year in the U.S. that's involved over 2,000 workers. You and that's, know why? that's a lot of massive strikes, this just being the biggest and latest one. The so. reason why, though? Inflation. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had like 15% yeah. inflation over the last 18, 20 months, and that's cutting into everyone's wages. And so your dollar isn't going as far as it was, precisely because we had, in the year 2020, printed out money that just flooded the economy. So of course the prices are going to go up for everything. And so you have these contracts where your wage is set, like they do like a, usually these, you know, like a three-year or a four-year contract where it goes up certain percent every year. Well, you know, if you have inflation that's roasting at like 15% or, you know, per year, it might be 10 or whatever, then all of a sudden, you know, you're not doing that well. And so they're like, this is crazy. We want more money. It's like, well, okay. And then like this idea that corporations, they're greedy. I always love that. Greedy. They're greedy. They want to make money. They have CEOs who make a lot of money. That's always the case. There's not a single year where a company isn't going to want to make money. There isn't a single year where the CEO is going to be a popper. They're always going to be making money. The question is, are you being paid fairly? And I, I think a lot of people, to Tom's point, aren't going to be very sympathetic to auto workers if they're like, we want a 32-hour week. Like, Dude, I'd love to have every Friday off too. Is is that we're yeah. <laughs> are we going to do this now? Like, I'm a, this is great. Sure, let's do this. But I think Trump's got a point where he says, pushing back at Biden, you're got and like Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, you're pushing all these regulations to try to make sure a certain percentage of the cars are going to be electronic vehicles, and that is going to increase the cost of the vehicle, and it's going to reduce the profits. Or and so I think it's not. It, that's putting pressure on the company on the, on, the, on the price side because electronic vehicles are more expensive. And so I think Trump's right to push back. At it. A lot of these other Republican candidates aren't even, they're, they're like, oh, strike. Oh, That's not even on their radar. It's not on the yeah. radar because they're like, oh, business must be right. And, you know, the union workers must be wrong. That's the, but Trump is like trying to rally these workers and say, listen, the, the problem here is that they're forcing you to make like one third of every car an electric vehicle. And I'm never going to buy an EV for the next 10, 15 years. You can't, I live in a place where it's knows like six months a year. I'm not going to trust somebody. Give me a break. Josh, you and me kind of grew up in, with, with Michigan, we've been around it. Like the United Auto Workers is one of the strongest, most powerful unions in the country. And then that obviously trickles down to other unions in Michigan when it comes to the teachers union. And, and these are people that, when you talk about the 32 hour work week, the, the big price increase, like they, whether or not we've talked about the same thing with teachers unions, their intention is not to represent anyone except the teachers, except the workers. They're going to try to negotiate the best possible deal. Their interests don't lie in. With education, it's worse because we're talking about kids. No, I they, know. Uh, they're educated. It doesn't lie with the kids and it doesn't lie with the cars, to Trump's point, because with the uh, regulations to get more electric vehicles, that's not really their concern. Their concern is how do we get our workers paid? How do we get them taken care of? How do we get the best possible conditions? 
and they're so powerful now. That's a whole nother conversation about they're too powerful in a lot of ways. There was a time maybe in the 1800s where unions, of course, were necessary. And because workers were truly getting abused and in bad conditions and things like that. (laughs) But at a certain point, when do we draw the line? Is this getting too crazy? And one thing that I wanted to bring up too is the big winner in all of this is another man who we have talked about frequently, Elon Musk and Tesla, because Tesla is not unionized and they are definitely reaping the benefit toward the push towards electric vehicles in terms of government subsidies and whatever. So they're going to cash out on this because if we shut down here- The thing is with the UAW, the strike, if they do it too hard, then- other auto manufacturers who don't have union, like Toyota, and they manufacture a lot of their cars in Tennessee, Alabama, Indiana, all these other companies, um, they're going to run into issues. Yeah. So I, I, you know, UAW's got to be careful about how they do this. They got to thread the needle a little bit. Yeah. It's an interesting situation, but I, I think the way that Trump is thinking about it is pretty, is different and probably productive. It's pretty clever. I have, yeah. I have an, or I was going to say, I have a segue now into, and we kind of cover this in different ways, but this is another example of it. So I don't know if anyone saw the Apple commercial. Mother all have Nature. <laughs> Mother Nature uh, was a crotchety black woman uh, in this commercial, and I, it was very slickly produced. She came in, and they basically had to give a presentation to her as the representative of Mother Earth and make her happy, and she was quippy and coming back, and it was just a really bizarre, I think even people who are very pro-Apple were like, what are we doing here? The assumption, of course, in the ad was that Mother Earth was, no matter what, going to be very disappointed and you guys can't live up to what you're supposed to do. And Apple's like, actually, don't worry. We did better than expected. We, you know, we polished that Apple, Mother Earth. We love you. da 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 We're so good. We did better than expected. Like, oh, wow. There's this whole ad where they're just patting themselves on the back and- yeah, they didn't. They didn't bring up the lithium batteries in Africa, but they didn't uh, mention anyway. cobalt mining. Yeah, I was a little disappointed, yeah, but so Erica, uh, when we talked about this, you said it kind of struck you as interesting. It's about creating gods, and that's kind of their new god. But it's for whatever their end is. In this case, their end is to sell more iPhone. It's, right. It's not. <laughs> so what's this? And and there was another video that came up. It was the the free press. You put me onto it. Yeah. Uh, both kind of examples of kind of, uh, you just have to go into it. Uh, the free press ad, connect them. I think that the two, of the, these two uh, videos really sort of encapsulate for me. They're like icons of our capitalist sort of. And what was the second video? Sorry, yeah, so the so second video, this, is, uh, this video is, I think, my favorite video of the month from the free press. And it's one of their, one of their journalists. He goes in, he was going to write it up. But it ended up being a really brilliant comic timing, awesome, so video editor props about he's going to go and infiltrate the Democratic Socialist Conference in this big city. And he, he goes in and he starts, he starts out by trying to interview people attending the Democratic Socialist uh, Party. And he's saying things like, OK, so we're going to abolish capitalism. And they're like, yeah, we're going to abolish capitalism. No more free economy. And, and, and uh, you know, then it cuts to somebody sucking on their Starbucks, you know, ice latte. It's really great. But <laughs> so then he starts to push on. He's like, okay, so where will I get my deli sandwich for lunch when, when capitalism's abolished? And they're like, well, you'll just go to the store and they'll give it to you. And so it goes on and on. Eventually they kick him out for asking too many intelligent questions. So the democratic socialists who are like creating this utopia. Not with the police, mind you. No, no, just themselves. Just the, because they don't believe in the police. They made that very clear. We don't believe in right, the police, right. but this hotel has rules and you will get kicked out by security. It's very authoritarian, yeah. I think he said. And so then he notices that just across the, the way in like the adjoining hotel, there's another conference. And then it cuts to like all these black women roller skating and having a fun time. And it turns out it was like the Black Women Entrepreneur Conference. So a bunch of capitalists bring him in and they explain to him why like, the free market has been great for them. Pulled, yeah, this one woman, she has six companies. She's written 13 memoirs and she's only 40, which who knows what's in those. But the vibes were really high. interesting. But these people were energized. They were having fun. They were happy. And the contrast was awesome. It was a beautiful video. I'm going to link it. Everyone should uh, go and watch it. Well, but Tom, you and I were talking. Go ahead, Josh. I mean, the video... Well, it was a beautiful contrast between those two and like one guy at the socialist workers convention or whatever is like, I imagine a feature like Star Trek where there's 
no money and anything you could ever want. And it's like, okay, great. Well, why don't you go ahead and invent one of those replicators? You walk up to it and say, I want a ham sandwich and it magically appears. But in the meantime, we're here in the real world where people are hungry and need <laughs> to feed each other. But the Apple commercial, I think it's just a perfect epitome of, um, you know, call it late stage Republic. I mean, it's like this, we have mm -hmm. this capitalist, we have this capitalist regime that we have, but it's, everyone is, their heart is sort of falling in love with socialism and they feel super guilty. And so that, you know, the, the, you know, the people who are, oh, I don't know if I should shell out, you know, $800 for the fanciest new iPhone. Capitalism so bad anyway, I hate it. But Apple will say, <laughs> don't worry, we hate capitalism too-ish, kind of. And we love, and Mother, we love Earth, Mother Earth. And you can feel so good because if you buy this foldable plant a tree or whatever, I mean, it's just like right. all about like assuaging this guilt that people have and participating in it. So it just cracks me up. I mean, there's no yeah. conversation. So, but the, the larger point, and all that's hilarious, Erica, we're kind of talking about this, but the, the observation I had of the people at the socialist convention, which I think socialism, rightfully so in some ways, kind of gets talked about as this big, scary uh, thing that's going to change the country. And in some ways it has, but the people at the socialism con con convention were weird, outcast, nerd, out of shape, wearing masks. Like they weren't physically threatening or imposing. And organized. They were organized. Right. I felt kind of actually sad uh, for them because it just became obvious to me these are people that yeah, slipped through but, the cracks, didn't work in the traditional system. Okay. And, but, but what the biggest contrast to me was the person speaking at the socialism conference was a good looking, well-spoken young person, which then led me to believe, I think about this in a lot of different ways. It's the people who are kind of like alphas or whatever. It's the same thing on the other side with um, Tony Robbins and some of those people, like they sell their course to become a high value man. And if you do all these things, you're going to get all the girls and all the money and you're going to make all this. And of course, they're taking advantage of people with low self-esteem. It's like they just choose their side. They're almost creating a religion in a way. I feel like that socialism conference, because you want people to feel like they have a purpose and that what they're doing matters. And these are people that have not been able to find that in society, which the end of all of this is you won't find it. You only find it in God. Yeah, everyone has a God. But they're creating secular heart. religions. Yeah, exactly. As Augustine said. And a lot of young people, especially, you know, like what is Gen Z? I mean, you're, they're born in a generation. Josh, of, I'm, a, I'm a Gen Z. Okay. You said that like a slur. <laughs> but I'm saying is that that's a generation where pretty much your then entire life has been in a post-Christian environment. Whereas Eric and I can still recall the, the last few vestiges years where there's that Christian residue was still kind of there and it's gone. And so, we have a lot less institutions, you know, and there's a lot less trust in institutions. And, you know, people are looking for some sort of anchor, some sort of purpose. So, like, to me, like, if we ever get beyond this and, and, and recover Western civilization, like, put that Apple ad in the Louvre, because it's, like, such a prime piece for this era. It's so obvious, like, worshiping Mother Earth, and she's cranky, and she's telling, you know, she's scorning you but like no don't worry you know we're we're just fine you know and it's just yeah and i think that like what come across what came across in both the apple and at the democratic socialist convention was the the overwhelming like feeling watching the democratic socialist young people was sort of this pity right because and you can we all want to feel like we're good people we all want to do the right thing most people like not the sociopaths, obviously, but no, it's human nature. It's human, people, it's human nature, right? It's human people, nature. Yeah. Like we want to feel like we're doing the right thing. We want to act, you know, be like we're loving, we're kind, we're good people. And you know, on the capitalist end of things, oh well, you can, you know, I only buy Apple products because look, we're saving the planet, and so you feel like a good person and like you're doing homage to this thing that's bigger than you, democratic socialists. Like, oh, you know, we're we're not downtrodden on the poor and everyone's included and we're everything's open and accepting. Like that feels really good. Um, but if you, if you take two seconds and you play the long game, like you look at the long game and you see the contrast with these black women entrepreneurs who are 
being innovative. They're inventing things. They're pulling themselves Queens. out of poverty. They're actually doing the work. And that, but it, it's, it sounds better to say something like, well, we're just going to give the poor all this stuff. Anyway, it was a really, like I said, these two videos put together were just a great sort of cultural moment. Like Josh said, put them both in the Louvre, because that's how we'll understand the 2020s when we look back in 100 years. Pre-Twilight Zone, to Josh's point, as this is always kind of mind-blowing to people my age or younger, uh, Bolton Sheen had the number one show on television at one point, like a Catholic priest, that people... Like people listen to this. And he wasn't like, building any day. bridges either. I mean, this was like a Catholic priest no. show where he was like, there is a hell, there is sin, and you need yeah. Jesus Christ. <laughs> this is like, he, he wasn't pulling <laughs> he wasn't punches. Pussy pudding. Um, no, he definitely was not pulling punches. And he had the most popular show on television. Like, could you imagine that today? A Catholic priest had the most po- popular show on well, television. Well, I mean, Mike Schmidt soon. <laughs> yeah, he won yeah. awards. He won awards. He was on other shows. People treated him with respect. Oh. It's, it's really hard to even go back to that. Back time. when the church took media seriously. Right. Yeah. Go go back and listen to some Fulton Sheen. Like you can watch them. They're all on YouTube. Um, you know what? He's an unbelievable speaker. Yeah. People who you know Catholics did not get heartburn when Fulton Sheen gave an interview. Just gonna say that out. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> For those that get the insider, you know what Josh is talking about. That's right. Um, all right. So we're moving to the Twilight Zone now. Uh, Josh, what do you have? Well, kind of uh, another video in a sense i just saw this um jordan peterson i i like him a lot you know a lot of people find him pretty fascinating pretty smart guy you know the canadian psychologist i love his outfits i mean hello look at those suits <laughs> well so he was attacking this like you know the the atheistic scientist a materialist view he's like atheists just assume that all of us can be these rational science, have this rational scientific method of looking at the world, and therefore everyone will be better off if we adopt this method. And Jordan Peterson's like, listen, to look at the world like a scientist is a lot, takes a lot of effort, a lot of training, a lot of education to kind of adopt that way of seeing things. Like that's not general audience. Like, and we're as, we have as many people who are higher educated as possible, and we're still light years from that. That's just that's just not an attainable thing. He said, that's why I, he said, I applaud Catholicism. It's a drama and it's inclusive in the right sense of the word. Anyone can be a part of this drama, this story, and this understanding of the universe and the world. So he showed just a lot of deep respect for it. And I thought that was really, you know, some people, oh, maybe he's converting. Um, who knows? Maybe not. Who knows? Whatever. I'm not really bringing it up for that point. But my point is to bring it up is that to say, the underlying assumption of our age is this rationalist, materialist, atheist view of looking at things. It's rational, it's scientific, and he's just like, give me a break. Like, the, you know, and he didn't say this, but of course it's true. Like, in this super rational age where we've dispensed with established religion, we have pe- more people into astrology, you know, and all this yeah. other baloney. It's like cult stuff, you know, so. Are we more rational than we were 40, 50 a, years ago? I have a story about that, Josh. So, Take it away. Uh, my, my lovely wife and I went to Milwaukee, and we went to the art museum there. And the, uh, specifically one of the most captivating parts of it, it was, a, it was a really awesome. Well, a huge collection, really awesome. Uh, but they did a good job of explaining in each place they told you about the period where the art was from and they gave some context as to why it was influential at the time and some, some of the artists, their backgrounds. And the Baroque period, for My anyone favorite. familiar, I feel like Erica, yeah, <laughs> good. We, we got some Baroque people in here. I wasn't- I'm so broke, I can't pay attention. <laughs> we made Dad a lot joke. of Baroque jokes for sure. <laughs> but the Baroque period, at least in their description, was about how the Reformation was happening at the time and Martin Luther had kind of shaking things up and he was going around basically got people church to church to destroy beautiful art because they were considered icons and those artists at the time this was around the time of the gutenberg press but most of the people that could only the people that could read uh were low so people that either had an education as a priest or were very wealthy could read but most people the average person probably couldn't even read at the time and so what they did was they created beautiful art scenes from uh, Bible, from Bible passages, uh, or um, religious uh, events, so saints lives. some things that really struck yeah. me: saints' lives, mm-hmm. 
I mean, I think uh, there's a really like breathtaking uh, portrait of is it Saint Francis of Assisi with the the he has a hood on and he's holding a skull. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at Saint Francis in ecstasy. Yeah, and and they were basically influencing the people uh, because they couldn't read, but they could take in this art, and people could tell stories about what was happening during the in the Bible, inspiring people, deepening their faith because they had to fight back as a lot of these were being destroyed by educating people through art. And because people understand art, they understand beauty, they understand story, they understand drama. So I experienced that in real time in Milwaukee. Go check out the Baroque period. It's yeah, sick, no, the way. whole point of the Baroque art is, art is it's this dramatic effect in art. Dramatic, it shows action. I love it. One of my favorites is, um, and I love it because I myself was a Doubting Thomas. Um, I had, I left the faith for several years. I came back, and I that it's easy for me to see myself as a Saint Thomas. Like I, I this you think he really he he died and he rose again? Really, I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes, till I could feel him. And, and it's, I mean, that's the humility here. I have to say, like there, but for the grace of God, go I. There's no the idea that I would be like Saint John and be so faithful and be at the cross. I know myself enough to know I probably wouldn't have been that guy. I'll probably would, I might not be as bad as St. Peter. I might have been. I'm definitely like St. Thomas. Like, he's dead. He's dead. It's not coming back. You guys get over it. And people are like, no, Thomas, we saw him alive. He rose from the dead. And then finally, Jesus comes to him and he grabs Thomas's hands and sticks it into his rib cage. And so there's this beautiful piece of art by Caravaggio where it's, you know, that the incredulity of Thomas, where you see him, his hand touching the rib cage of Jesus. And I, I love it. I mean, to me, that brings it to life. And I think it's, the, my, it's by far my favorite art. And if you'll notice in the weekend loop, um, I, I'll be honest, like 90% of the time, it's a piece of broke art because I love it. So if you don't like it, right up on I guess art. don't click the Saturday loop. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Erica. All right, yeah, continuing the thoughtful theme this week rather than some crazy news story. uh, I wanted to just highlight, this is probably my favorite reads moment of the fall so far. Here, uh, Louise Peary in the October First Things issue has a phenomenal article called We Are Repaganizing. It's really a long extended essay. And once in a while, you'll get these uh, essays, especially in a journal like First Things, that just hits the nail over the head. We've highlighted uh, Matthew Schmidt's had How Gay Marriage Changed America back in 2022, which was just a sort of prophetic analysis of how we got to where we are, the role that Obergefell played in that. And Louise Perry here, I think she this year has really nailed where we're going. This uh, She's looking ahead to what's this cultural moment that we're in, and she calls it repaganization. And I just wanted to highlight, we've talked a lot about this on this show, actually. It's been very a sort of meta loopcast episode, right? So she talks about the role that Christianity played in getting us here and what's happening now that we've lost our Christian culture. She likens Christianity, it's not so much to like water, watering a garden as it is. There's this pagan barbarian forest, you think of like old Germany or something, and Christianity made a clearing where you could have, you know, civilization at a garden. And the forest is now encroaching back on this clearing. She says, and I was going to read a couple quotes here, tease it, you got to go read it. Built into the fabric of Christianity is a love for the weak that could not help but slowly and falteringly work against the strong. Christians were not unique in owning slaves, for instance, but they were unique in eventually banning slavery, something no other civilization has ever done before. And modern secular feminists familiar only with The Handmaid's Tale wholly underestimate the emancipatory effect that Christianity had on women. And Louise Perry makes the point. She says, now that we're losing Christianity, we're seeing the return of infanticide as her primary example. Canada right now is very seriously debating, quote unquote, a bill that would allow infanticide for infants, uh, basically medical aid in dying for infants after birth. Slavery uh, and the objectification. Medical aid in dying is is the worst euphemism made. I've heard in a yeah, long time. Yeah, it even like, sounds like slavery. Um, and she talks, she's like, look, if infanticide is again legalized first in Canada and then inevitably across the whole de-Christianized world, we will know for sure that Christianity has retreated back into the catacombs. Uh, very powerful essay. 
especially coming from someone who herself is not a Christian. Um, so I think, you know, that and that lends a little bit more thoughtfulness in some ways or just, uh, you know, weight to what she's saying. So it's very sobering, but it's a great articulation of what's going on right now. So go to First Things. It's on the website. Uh, just October just remember to have hope because the thing is, I remember, you know, I'm too old for you on this, Tom, but uh, growing up in the 1980s, my grandfather said I should learn Russian. I should learn to speak Russian. I said, why? Well, we're all going to be speaking it someday, don't you think? I mean, the thought was the Soviet Union was going to be around for hundreds of years. And it wasn't even, you know, six years later, the Soviet Union was no more. It was gone. And what uh, in its placement, it's some sort of mixed bag, but you know, the international imperialist communism is dead. We have this now uh, in China with the red dragon there, we have this hybrid Mar uh, Marxist, capitalist, fascist kind of ugly thing, and it's nasty. Um, but the threat on our, in our own country, as Erica's saying, is this repaganism, is the abandonment of faith. But things can turn around quickly. Um, I think all of us Christians, yeah, as St. Peter said, we have to have a, an explanation or a reason for the hope that lies within us. And um, if you were living in Poland in the 1980s, like the thought that you would be a free a country just in a short time, that's amazing to think of the change that can happen quickly. So um, God's still in the driver's seat on all this stuff. We, we believe that. And um, you got you to hope. Uh, you, you know, we're called to be faithful and uh, not necessarily successful, but let's try to turn the ship around if we can. Yeah, so my Twilight Zone, speaking of Russia, the moon landing, definitely. Um, okay, yeah. No, we're not going to go into the moon no, landing we're on not. this episode. This stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, my real Twilight Zone actually is a conversation I had with Erica, not to, not to put anyone on blast here, but there's a video that came out and it's just, I've seen so many of these and they're always so gross and unnatural, but it was two men uh, that went and got a egg from a donor and uh, they had a baby through this egg and they were just put him in front of a camera or her talking about how cute their baby was and all the features that they had picked out basically like look at those eyes look at this hair you know we read we'd gone through hundreds of women and shortlisted some and we wanted these qualities um, and so it was just it felt very transactional like they were looking at it like they could just make a baby in a machine and it would come back and it had all the cute qualities that they wanted and just another one of those just so hard to watch. Uh, and I think obviously the Catholic vision for marriage and procreation makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they're talking about a human being. Um, and then there's another story that, that came out where this guy was a sperm donor uh, in his younger age and fathered, I think, 96 children, something like that. And started feeling a lot of uh, guilt about that, wanted to have connection with a lot of these kids. And so he's traveling around and there's of course, tough relationships with the people that he gave the sperm to and had kids. Like, well, what is the relationship now? It's like, it's kind of their dad. Not really. Obviously, just like a really bizarre place to be in. But uh, Erica said that there was a debate about this before my time as well. And there was a potential uh, group of nuns that were thinking about fathering children of sperm donors. Is this Mothering. Like, this Mothering. Just blew yeah. my okay, you're, Mothering. Get your gender well, straight right, there, Tom. Of course. No, yeah, so this was uh, back in the, yeah, early 2000s. It's so funny you picked that out. I did not expect that. Um, back in the early 2000s, we're talking about, you know, all these frozen embryos, and there was a real debate going on. There were actually several young women who were considering founding a religious order where the women would, the, the nuns, would just impregnate themselves with these frozen embryos so that they could bring them to life into baptism get them to loving homes. And that would be the whole vocation of these women would be to save these frozen human beings. And that was, uh, again, like, Josh, is Josh is like, I can't oh, believe this was a conversation. Hey, I was in the early days of the John Paul II Institute. People were really wrestling with these um, questions. But again, like that's sort of taking it too far to the other extreme of you know, now you're going to, these women were going to basically commodify their own wombs 
trying to save these babies. And it, it was just this bizarre conversation well, that... I would I don't know if they're commodifying it. I would say what they're doing is they they may authentically, truly be wanting the better for that person that's frozen as a tiny, tiny, tiny human being. I don't think it's commodified. I don't think it's commodification, but I think it's a misplaced um, charity, attempt at charity. Um, but that's a real debate. Like, no, because people may not realize this, but when you do in vitro vertical, in vitro vertical, well, I can't say this. IVF, IVF. Is, is condemned by the church. It's immoral. But what what happens in in vitro fertilization is that usually you get like six or seven embryos that are created and you implant like maybe one, two, three, whatever, hope that some survive, but then others are created that you have no intention of ever bringing to life, further to life in, in, in a womb, unless you just throw them in a, in a, in a freezer and it's not, it's all, everything about it is undignified. I, 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 I understand the, the plight the, of moms and dads who can't have any of their children on their own. I know people like this, but it's not the answer. But the people have wrestled with this. Now you've got this freezer with 10,000 humans that are basically six, seven weeks old or however, whatever stage of development they're at. What can you do? Should you bring them to life? Should you find them wombs? And um, there's, not, there's no good answer. But I have to know, what happened with these nuns? Did it, that didn't end up happening, No, right? the order was never founded. No, this was okay. a conversation. Thank heavens. Wow. I, the church would, I, would not be approved at all. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know uh, when we talked about it. There was no re- resolution, so I'm like, did these people? Did these not? <laughs> you wanted to know the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm I'm locked in right now. No, like, that's, if that's, it would have happened, just a crazy you heard idea. about it by now. <laughs> Should no. bad, bad Although, idea. I mean, bless her heart, but no, no, bad idea. But yeah, probably a bad idea. But I just thought even the concept was interesting, and uh, I think if we could just wrap it all in a bow please stop commodifying human beings. It's disgusting, unnatural, and no one should do it. It's, it's hard for me to watch every time. Like People get on social media like, man, this is going to look so great when I brag about how I made this baby in a lab. Like, No, it doesn't. It just always comes off as terrible. Um, anyway, so that does it for this week's edition of the Loopcast Ways to Help the Program. Please comment Apple Podcasts specifically. We're at 356, so we're, we're rolling up. We're moving towards 400. Uh, got some great reviews on there. Either just throw us five stars, or you can write a personalized review, which we really appreciate. Uh, Spotify, you can rate there as well. If you want to email us, loopcast at catholicvote.org. I've been appreciating all the emails. We do want to have more mailbag content. So if you have questions for us, please email in for us to talk about. We'd love to discuss uh, what you would like us to discuss. Uh, And so we end this as always with Our Lady Guadalupe, St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis. Pray for us, and we will see you guys on the next episode. Bye.